You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what he has to say about the new ways that young people could potentially enter the property market. We conducted some research a couple of weeks ago, um, a lot of this was covered in the papers last week, about the pessimism that exists about people's ability to get onto the property market. And uh, nearly a quarter of the Australian population believe it's more likely that will find life on Mars before they actually have a chance to get into their dream home. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking dumbbell of the week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Anthony Millett, CEO of fractional property investment company BrickX. With a passion for property and technology, Anthony's mission is to make property ownership and investing affordable and accessible for all Australians. Launched in late 2016, BrickX has enabled over 12,000 individuals to invest into the property market one brick at a time, I understand, and is proving very popular with millennials, many of which are using BrickX to actually save their housing deposit. Also, general investors and self-managed super funds are now able to diversify their investments more easily. Originally from the UK, where property also suffers from similar affordability and accessibility issues, Anthony brings a wealth of innovative and professional experience in e-commerce, technology and the banking industries to successfully lead the BrickX team. Now, welcome, Anthony. We're really keen for you to help us understand what this relatively new concept is all about and how you see it changing the future of the property market in Australia. Hi, Anthony. How are you doing? Hi. Morning, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here, mate. I mean, a bit of a disclosure to all the listeners. I've known about BrickX from even before it got started in 2016, and I'm actually the broker for BrickX, so I have helped them with their mortgages for their properties. So I will try to stay as unbiased as I can. But um, <laughs> That means know, I have to ask all the hard questions. You ask the hard <laughs> questions. Yeah, that's just out there for our listeners. Anthony, um, fractional property investing you know, is something that is exploding. There's more and more businesses opening up like BrickX around the world, et cetera. For our listeners who have never even thought about or even know what it is, can you kind of give us a simple kind of snippet of how it works? Yeah, so I'll explain what we do and then I'll try and give an analogy, which hopefully makes it a bit easier to understand. So um, essentially what we do is we enable uh, everyone in Australia to be able to invest in residential real estate by allowing them to buy a fraction of a property via a managed investment scheme structure. What that essentially means is we buy a property, we put it into a trust, which we split into 10,000 units or bricks as we call them. And then investors are able to buy individual bricks in that property up to 5%. The properties are rented out. So every month you get your share of the rental income, depending on how many bricks you own. And as the value of the property changes, the value of your investment changes. 
And one thing that's really unique with BrickX compared to all of the other models across the world is that we've got a, uh, a marketplace that essentially when you decide you want to sell, you can put your brick up for sale on the marketplace. And it's generally taking about 24 hours for those bricks to sell at the moment. So we're bringing an element of liquidity to residential real estate that's never really existed before. The great thing about that now is that people can start to think about investing in residential real estate, not only in smaller amounts, you know, starting from just a few hundred bucks, but also without needing to be fixed into this investment for a certain period of time, which is some of the problems that we've seen with uh, syndication historically. Really very, very interesting. So my big question to start with is, is this really investing in property? So the answer is absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, the whole thesis of BrickX was formed off the basis of you can invest in companies through shares where you can buy part of a company. You can invest in other different asset classes. The, the barriers to entry are pretty low. Savings accounts, you don't need a certain amount. Term deposits, you can put in small amounts. But in Australia, if you want to invest in residential real estate, the only way that you could actually really do that was by buying a property. There aren't any real estate investment trusts or listed funds that give you exposure to residential property. Yeah, so the difference is here, because there are uh, obviously property trusts out there, but they're all commercial, right? They're all commercial mm. and industrial. Mm. And so the thing that we set out to solve was, how can we make residential property as an asset class accessible to everyone? It's been the asset class that's been the top performer over the last 20 years. The average return from residential property has been 9.6%. Yet it's been exclusive and only available to those that are able to buy the entire property. So when we came to designing this, how we would structure this, we wanted to keep this as pure as we possibly can to make sure that the investment in property and exposure is to property. Now, by putting it in a trust and having it in a managed investment scheme means that it is, in legal uh, terms, indirect. But ultimately, your exposure and your risk is to the properties that you choose to build in your portfolio. The irony of property investing is that a lot of people think, you know, it's very not very risky, property safe as houses. You know, there's all these sayings there, property only market goes up. But when you actually take the lid off and you actually think about what you're doing, you're putting in maybe 10%, you're going to a bank and borrowing another 90%. So you're, you're leveraging it up tenfold a lot of the time. Plus your cost, and another you're 5%. Plus, you're yeah. putting in 5% straight to the government. And then you're leveraging maybe five or 10 times into one asset in one area on one street. And so what happens to that one property or in that one area in that street? It's highly undiversified and you're putting all your eggs in one basket. And I guess that's the biggest problem with property. It's also been something that's worked for people because the property market's done well. If you do want to then get a little bit of your money back, Unless you can go to a bank and refinance, there's no actual way to get your money back. You can't just sell a bathroom. No. That's right. (laughs) Um, Whereas with shares, you can, you know, like, and that's been one of the biggest benefits of, you know, share investing is you buy $200,000 and then you need a new bathroom, you just sell $20,000. But the big difference with shares is that there's an industry index, isn't there, to tell you exactly what the shares are trading at that day. And... So you can absolutely know categorically what the value of your share is at any given moment, effectively. And whereas you've got, or you've got a product which is a house or an apartment. Do you buy apartments or just houses? Yeah, apartments and houses. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, so a property. Let's say a residential property. And how do you get to the point? So if somebody can trade in and out of that, you know, sell a few bricks, buy a few bricks, 
how do you keep that sort of that daily idea of or, or the daily reporting in terms of where does the value come yeah. from? When we set out to go, right, look, one of the functions of this platform that we're building, which we've been celebrated globally for in terms of creating this secondary market opportunity, is how do we enable it to function efficiently? I think the first thing to say is that investors need to be aware or be aware of, and we do a lot to promote this from an educational point of view, that you are investing in residential real estate. And to get the best returns of residential real estate, history has shown us that a medium to long-term exposure is what makes the most sense. You can be very lucky if you buy something and in the short term it goes up. And we've had some fabulous runs in Sydney and Melbourne recently. But over the long term, a, a, a medium to long-term approach shows that that's what, what's going to deliver the best results for investors. So what we do, we're not trying to encourage trading. What we, the, the way that we view this and the way that we communicate this is that all the properties that we bring onto the platform come on for an initial period of five years. At five years, there's a vote for whether we should extend it for another five years or, or not. But if during that five-year period, you decide actually you need your money for something else, you can put your bricks up for sale. Now, to ensure that we've got an efficient market operating, we revalue the properties every six months and we publish that valuation of what every property is worth and thus what every brick is worth. For you to sell your bricks, it needs a willing buyer to come along. And with the publishing of that independent valuation, the buyer gets comfort of what is a fair value for a brick. The seller gets a good idea of what they should be selling their brick for to attract a buyer. And those transactions happen pretty frequently and pretty efficiently. And that's why the majority of transactions, the median trans- time it takes for someone to sell their bricks since we started, it's about 22 hours at the moment. So that works really, really well. And it's all about transparency and all about fairness. It's in- Give our uh, <laughs> listeners a bit of an idea on like numbers in terms of how many properties you've got and like how much transactions are actually going through the portal. Because if it's only got one property and you're starting out, then- it's a great idea, but you're actually much further down the, the line now, aren't you? Because you've got... Yeah. So we're, we're close to having $20 million worth of property on the platform split across. Uh, I think as of next week, we'll have 18 properties. Mm-hmm. We've got over 12,000 investors across the platform, and the majority of properties have got over 1,000 investors in each. The investors are generally taking a, a, are embracing the opportunity to be able to diversify Chris, you spoke about diversification earlier. And of course, even if you're investing in an area that you think is going to be the area that's going to deliver you the best returns, we'd still encourage people to diversify to just reduce that single property risk. And so the average the average portfolio has over three different properties in it, mm-hmm. in it now. Um, in terms of transactions going through the platform, we generally tend to see that the, the turnover on a per property basis is around 2 to 4% per month. But that's normally more driven by sellers than it is for buyers. Because ultimately, if you have your bricks and you want to hold your bricks, then you won't put them up for sell. So the more buyers we can attract to the platform, actually the quicker we can bring more more properties onto, onto the platform. Which is sort of interesting because you've got Sydney, Melbourne changing in market conditions at the moment. Have you got a lot of your people or a lot of your investors that have shares in those properties freaking out now and trying to offload them? There's less excitement about investing in Sydney and Melbourne now than there was a year ago. I think for legal reasons, I'll just say claim we they're not we, we can't call them shares. They're sorry, bri- sorry, we'll yeah, call bricks. them bricks. Yes, uh, but that's fine. <laughs> to talk specifically about Sydney, um, our approach to buying has to be buying in um, highly established blue chip 
suburbs that, again, history has shown, and although history is not necessarily a guide to the future, that you know these areas in really good performing years outperform the market, move quicker because credit's easier and, and, and this is where people aspire to live. And in the more challenging years of property cycles, they tend to be more defensive in nature and, and, and hold their hold their value a lot more. And, and some of the things that we look at when we're buying are making sure that there's limited capacity for oversupply or oncoming supply into the market. So for those who are familiar with Sydney, Bondi Beach, Double Bay, Darlinghurst, you'll know those areas well and go, well, actually, they're pretty built up. There's not much that can really happen there. And actually, the six months from January to June, the Sydney portfolio was up was valued up 2.6% by the independent valuer, whereas the actual market fell about uh, about 2.6%. So despite different pro- where we are in different property cycles, mm. we do still see that the quality that we're buying should con- should generally outperform the market. And that that is a good story just on, on the aside for buyers that are out there looking is that, and this is the thing that we talk about constantly in this podcast with various agents and researchers and data people, they see that exactly happening on the ground. Agents see it happening. We interviewed Mark Foy from Surrey Hills a few episodes back, and and we talked about A grade properties, B and Cs, and the difference to what is happening to those properties in a slower market. The A grades still get good competition and can even see some mm. small growth, or worst case scenario, they, they sort of sit on their haunches and stay at the same level. So that's it's interesting that you've seen the same investors coming to you. What tools do they have to be able to decide which properties to buy their bricks in. Yeah. So uh, again, transparency is something that we hugely pride ourselves on. So when it comes to each individual property, we're showing them all of the information around the investment report that we got before we decided to buy it, um, the monthly uh, cash flow breakdown down to every single expense, uh, the historic returns of the suburbs, the rationale as to why we decided to bring this property to the platform. Um, and I think the other thing that gives the the investors a lot of comfort is we're not forcing anyone into any investments. BrickX is actually going out upfront with their property team, identifying the properties, and we're securing the properties and buying them using funds from our underwriter to bring them to the platform. So whether you want to participate or not, that's your choice. But we've already endorsed it. And if it doesn't, if all the bricks don't get sold down on day one, then our underwriters are happy to carry on holding these because of the quality of the property that we've got and the process that we go through. Um, in addition, um, we write lots of blogs around the areas that we're in. Um, we've recently launched, last year we launched into Adelaide and uh, about three weeks ago we launched into Ballarat. So we are giving lots of opportunity outside of Sydney and Melbourne led by our, our property team. Um, but actually last week we launched a new product called Smart Invest which uh, essentially allows you to commit to a monthly um, a, a monthly amount to uh, into buying bricks that automatically gets invested in a curated portfolio selected by our property team, and the mandate of that portfolio is to outperform the Australian wide housing index. So it's like a, an ETF, <coughs> except that it. Performs well, yeah, above. Yeah, the it's rest it's of the an market. it's an active right. it's an actively interesting. Well, it's, it's not quite mm. actively managed, but yeah, it's it's a curated portfolio that's aimed to outperform. That mm. um, has we've built the algorithm that ultimately will diversify you. Make sure you're only investing in those 
those curated properties. And so what this does now is creates two paths on BrickX. You come to BrickX and you go, okay, I want to invest some money in residential real estate. Do I have the confidence myself to be able to choose where I want to go? These guys are giving me all the information, but can I can I do that myself? Or actually, do I want to piggyback off the expertise of our pro- the property team and go, you know what, I know I want exposure to the sector, but I don't have the confidence myself, and thus I'll go down the smart invest route. And we actually found that much quicker than we thought, decision paralysis um, was starting to become an issue on the platform, mm. especially when we had seven or eight properties in Sydney and people were going, or oh, should I invest in Double Bay or Mossman or Manly or Bondi? The reality is they'll probably all perform fairly similarly, mm. but you should still diversify, et cetera. And so some people just want to be able to delegate that delegate that away to the experts. Yeah, I remember when I chatted to Marcus, who founded the company back in 2015, before it actually even launched. And what, some of my feedback to him when we were chatting about it was, it needs scale. You need to have a number of properties on there. It, you know, if you've only got three or four properties, you're never really going to create a market. Now, Fast forward kind of three years, you're at kind of 20 properties. You're almost in every state. You've got 12,000 investors. So you've actually created a platform here. And this is when I think that the product really starts to become quite interesting because you now start opening up lots more options for people to diversify. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg. For listeners here, I guess it's where do you go to from here? I know that you have raised a lot of capital and venture capital. Can you tell us a bit more about why venture capital happy to give you whatever it is, $10 million? Yeah, sure. So we, um, it's fairly well documented that we last year raised a venture round with Westpac's VC reInventure and NAB Ventures participating in that round. And the things they liked about us and why they wanted to support the business and be a part of this business is that residential real estate as an asset class has been inaccessible to most yet within this country, it's culturally very, very important. And mm. despite the affordability thing, you know, crisis or whatever we want to call it now that everyone's talking about, it's still, you know, the Australian dream is still very much alive. Yeah, we're seeing technology disruption globally in every sector, yet in residential real estate, it was pretty, it's been pretty slow to see kind of any significant technology disruption. We don't think that in the short term, people are not going to want to live in houses, but the way that people interact with this asset class, I think, can evolve and will evolve and is evolving. And these guys want to be a part of it. And if you think about the banks themselves and where a lot of their their, their profits and their business comes from, it is from the residential mortgage. And, you know, there is much investing into what the future of home ownership might look like to, to make sure that that's a, a, a you know, some a strategy or, or something that they're close to. BrickX, as a part of our Smart Invest launch last week, we have also announced that we're really dialing up our, our our positioning to being about helping people achieve home ownership and get into their first home uh, easier, smarter, and sooner. And that's you know what you'll see with smart investors. This is one in a series of products that we'll be launching over the next couple of years that will aim to get people into their home sooner and also hopefully improve their experience on that home ownership journey. So there's two parts of that, obviously, well, probably more than two, but two that I can see straight up. One is obviously you're saying, say, for instance, that curated portfolio would outperform the market and you're saying that, as, you know, property is over the last 20 years out, it performed at 9.4% per annum. So there's that growth, but then there's leverage as well. So are people borrowing to buy bricks? <clears throat> so uh, generally speaking, no. 
Um, we do have leverage within our product. So as, as Chris mentioned earlier, he's, he's helped mm. us um, amazingly well in terms of um, securing mortgages against some of these properties. And, and given our, our fairly unique model, it was... Uh, it was no mean feat to get that resolved, and, we, we, and we, it took about it took it probably took about nine months. Yeah. Um, but the great thing is that we we have been able to secure some level of debt in these properties to be able to give gear them and give amplified returns to investors. And we're talking thirty to forty percent here. So when they're positively when you say geared. Thirty to forty percent. Oh, sorry, of gearing. Right. Of, of so yep. when most people are buying houses, they're putting down a 20 percent deposit, and they're eighty percent geared. Yep. And most of those, are, and they'll generally be negatively geared mm. at that level, because we don't want to be in a situation where we're calling funds in from investors every single month because these things can't, these individual properties can't support themselves. We make sure that we're positively geared with a really good buffer, so we're at thirty to forty percent to get that leverage. We haven't looked very deeply at putting more leverage on top of that. Um, I think people are able to do that individually if they want to by pulling, you know, by getting a loan or pulling money out of whatever opportunities they've got, whether they've got a mortgage offset account, et cetera. Um, but that's something that we're not actively promoting yeah, or it's, working on. it's the opportunity for the individual to leverage that actually inc- increases their skin in the game effectively and, and their opportunity to to magnify that growth or amplify that growth versus protects themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like, so- Absolutely. So people are people are able to do it if they want to do it themselves off the platform ultimately, right. but yeah. it's not it's not a service that we offer at this moment in time. And I, I think too, I, it's just you touch on something a little bit off the topic here, but you talked about positive gearing and negative gearing, et cetera. And, and just, just for the listeners to understand that if you're going to buy a quality property and you want it to be positively geared, you have to have a lot of equity in that property. And that could mean could mean that you're going to use a big deposit or it could mean that you're owning it over a long period of time and you actually gain that equity over time. But I think it's just an important thing to to mention. Quite often people come to me and say, I want to buy a positively geared property. And I'm like, well, that all depends on how much money you've got to put towards it because I can't help you buy crap property. It just is not in my DNA and it's not in our business model and it's just not part of my value, so we won't do it. And in order to get positive cash flow without putting up a lot of money, without a lot of equity, you are going to be buying crap. Yeah. And, 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 that's, <laughs> and that's really somewhere that we also don't compromise on and we don't need to compromise because a, property, a great property in Sydney may cost 1.2, 1.3 million. Yep. And we've got, you know, we're set up in a way that we can go and buy that, split it into bricks. And then mm. you've got a brick for, you know, if it's Got some gearing in it for ninety or ninety or a hundred dollars, yep. um, and we're not constrained by budgets per se. Whereas someone who could only afford a five hundred thousand dollar property, it's yep. a very different um, conversation yeah. when you're talking about quality. So that's why we 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 don't need to compromise on quality, and mm. we absolutely won't compromise on quality. I think that's a huge point because if BrickX was out there buying, you know, off the plan units or townhouses in the suburbs or house and land packages out west and what I could consider real speculative investing, you're basically risking your investors' money who are potentially a little bit uninformed because they're a bit early in their their, their journey. And when they go to BrickX, they've kind of outsourced asset selection to you, which is a big challenge. And they're actually getting into assets that they wouldn't be able to afford because they're able to get into, say, Mossman or Bondi or Double Bay. Well, I just want to go back to one point around that debt. I think it's a really big point for people who are thinking about investing in BrickX. It's been a problem with other fintechs um, where young investors are borrowing money on things like credit card and they're going into little personal loans and like 
Bitcoin's a prime example. People have gone into a lot of credit card debt because they've gone speculated on Bitcoin and then Bitcoin's <laughs> then crashed. And so that's not, when you're borrowing money at 15, 20% on credit cards to do investing, it's it's not a good idea. So, you know, if you're a young millennial and you think about putting things into something like BrickX uh, off a credit card, don't go there. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, I think I might just interject with something there and just kind of say, you know what, property investing is actually really freaking boring. It's very steady. <laughs> it's very unexciting. And when you remove the emotion out of it and the tangibility out of it, which quite frankly, you should, because people have got money to invest and they've got lots of different options and they should do what logically makes sense and try and not get emotionally connected. Property investing is very, very, very boring. You're not going to, it's not like shares. You're not going to wake up one day and go, oh my God, my property's worth 30% more than it was yesterday, or it's <laughs> worth 30% less, hopefully. Um, you know, it's very, it's very, very steady. And so the end of last year, we were having people troll us on Facebook going, why would I invest in property even if it could deliver me seven, eight, nine, ten percent returns? Bitcoin's the way to go. Of course, those people have all disappeared now. <laughs> and really where we, you know, where we see an alternative being is for those people that understand property as an asset class, and a lot of people do have a pretty good understanding of a basic level of understanding of property, and we help build on that knowledge. It could be something that could be good to consider when the alternative that you're doing is putting money into a cash savings account and getting 2% interest. And so for those people saving housing deposits, where you yeah. know you're, mm. at the moment you're going to be getting 2 to 3% interest, property, if it does continue to perform as it has done in the long term, will not only hopefully deliver you a higher return, but actually have you investing in line with the asset class that you're ultimately trying to own so that you know that for every $500 or $1,000 you're putting in, the market isn't running away from you and you're not getting left behind. And that's well, been that's, a really big problem for yeah. the last few years in Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, that's quite a, I hadn't actually thought of it like, like that in terms of saving your deposit. Yeah, and it's the hardest, it's, it's quite a common, I mean, it was just yesterday with a new client and, uh, you know, they've got the deposit you know, a couple hundred grand in their situation, uh, you know, moved back from London, got 200 grand in the in a savings account, thinking about buying, you know, their first home, but the wife's on maternity leave and he's you know, running a startup and so he's on a very low salary. And then they're thinking, well, we just want to get into the market because we feel like the market's running on us and we just want something. And so we just want to buy a unit. But because of his income and you know, A, the time of the cycle and the quality of asset that they would buy, it's not a good idea. And so, you know, we talked that through and we realised that the best thing for him right now is just to hold on and to keep saving, wait for the wife to get back to work, their borrowing capacity will increase and then they can go buy their first family home. Now, the natural thing was then, well, why don't, I'm leaving the money in the bank, I'm getting 3%, I'm paying tax on it, or maybe not because his wife's not working, but should I invest it into other assets? And the big challenge with that is that then you start looking at investing in shares generally. And shares investing short term can be extremely volatile and it really depends. Investing for three years in shares is just craziness. Investing for a year or even five years, I think, is just crazy as well. <laughs> because you know, if you go back in time and you look at five-year periods in shares, you can see huge differences in return. Some years you'll get 60%, 100%. Some years you'll lose 30%, 40%. And it's really the five years that you, when you go in and when you go out. And so for him... Putting that 200 grand in the stock market right now, when you've got US stock markets at all time highs, the Australian is, the UK, and then with the idea that they're going to take it out in a year or two for a housing deposit, it's just craziness as well. I think the only, the, the only thing I'd add to that probably though is 
if you're only thinking about investing for a year and you're talking about serious amounts of money and you're talking about money that you need for a housing deposit, the best advice that I could give someone is to keep it in cash and keep yourself flexible and mobile because you just, you know, circumstances can change very quickly. We don't know what the property market might do over a one-year period and I, I wouldn't encourage anyone to take a short-term view on it. You'd always have that flexibility that you can put your bricks up for sale whenever you want, but to get the best out of the returns, you should really be taking, I would say, a minimum two to three-year view of what we've got. And so I think in that scenario, if, if he thinks that I'm going to be doing something within a year, yeah. then you know, without giving, a, I'm not a financial advisor, but, you know, keeping yourself flexible, I think is the most, um, the most important thing. And this all comes down to risk and return, doesn't it? I mean, the risk in the bank account is low, the flexibility is high, but the return is woeful. You yep. know, you start upping the ante with risk, you start getting into more volatile markets. Potentially the return can be amazing, but it can also, you could lose absolutely everything. And like with property is risky. And I think that that's a perception in this country often is that you can't lose in property. And it always makes me laugh because I still meet people that think you can't lose in property, even with the headlines screaming as they are at the moment. They still think that. There's also the naysayers who haven't invested in property or who never will or never can, who will talk it down all the time. And that's, well, good luck to you, whatever, because at the end of the day, you're you're not invested into it as a class. But this idea of risk, and I think that there's still an element of risk, even with all that research you've done, for instance, because we don't know. And I think we are in a bit of a new landscape with the property market at the moment too. So one of the things that I really, really focus on is asset selection. And I'm pleased to hear that you've got a very keen attitude towards that. But what is of interest to me, you said that you've got five-year horizons on all properties, because that sort of does challenge another Australian belief, which is that property is always for the long term. And you buy, you never sell, right? And, you know, we had an episode recently, John Linderman, uh, episode 26, I think, and really interesting because he is a a property researcher. He's been around a long time and he talks about that not all property should be a long-term investment and there's a real difference around that. So this is interesting from my point of view to hear that that's from the outset, you've got five-year horizon. So talk us a bit more about that. Sure. So... I think the first thing to say that property is massively oversimplified when people talk about it. And the reality is that the property market, maybe it's not as complex as the share market in terms of the variety of what could happen between different companies, but you've got the property market, which then is broken down into different geographic areas and different micro geographic areas. Then you've got different types of properties and they're all going through different growth cycles. They've all got their different characteristics, et cetera. And so our view is there is always opportunity in the property market, but you can't talk about the property market in its general sense there. Um, we work with a property buying team called Performance Property Advisory, who are very, what I would call a very active managers, active in, in the way that they manage the portfolios and their buying strategy. We think about the property cycles as a property clock, which is a pretty uh, commonly used terminology or, or analogy within the industry. And we're generally trying to buy at the low point of a cycle, and we're generally trying to sell at the high point of the cycle. We're not buying for any other reason other than to make returns. So we're not doing it for tax incentives or anything else. So for us, it makes sense to be buying when we think something's cheap and sell something when we think it's probably got to the peak. And your your definition of a return is that 
increase in value. You're not focusing on the rent. We we're not for primarily not focusing on the rent because the the capital growth will generally out significantly outweigh the returns that you get from from the rent and the transaction costs as well. Because if you are talking about those shorter timeframes, then there's going to be they've got to be factored in, correct? Absolutely. So we are generally looking to get into markets now where we're, we're you know, property cycles will range from five to 10 to 12 years. And we're generally trying to get in at the point where we think it's about to enter, it's either entering or it's about to enter the growth stage. And we're looking to get out before that growth stage ends. So on your properties now, so your Sydney, Melbourne, your yeah. long-term growth properties that, you know, if you get out of them, Yes, you may go, you know, lose some growth or get some growth somewhere else, but then you still want to get back into those markets anyway, back in probably to the properties that you originally bought. Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying that the new properties and say going to other areas for short-term growth, that there's going to be a, a sell period for these investors where you're actually going to sell the properties in Adelaide or you're going to sell the properties? So, yeah, so we're not, we're not, it's, it's less about recycling the capital that's on the platform and going, we're going to sell one in, Sydney now, and then we're going to use that money to buy it because it's not our money, it's the investor's money. The reason that we put the five-year protection there, and think of it as a protection rather than a, a mandate that we're going to sell it in five years, is um, we go, this is a decent amount of time over which we hope that a property would have performed relatively well. In the event that the secondary market is not performing in the way it should do, and the liquidity is not there, then there is a break at five years where everyone can vote to sell it. But it is a vote. Not it's not BrickX will facilitate the vote, but it's not for us to decide we're going to sell it or we're not. We may give a recommendation based on the view of the property team where something is in the cycle. But what we're doing is putting it out to all of the brick holders who mm. get one vote per brick to go, hey, do you want us to sell this property or shall we roll it over for another period? So I guess for the individual brick owner who says, oh my God, we should be bailing and all the others that say, oh no, we want to keep it. And then <laughs> so you basically go, right, I'm my hand up and get rid of my, my bricks. Absolutely, put yeah. them up for sale. Mm. But, but I mean, look, we actually think that, we actually think that the, most of these properties will roll over because the easiest way, if you go, hey, I actually don't want to, I'm happy being an investor in here, then you're going to happily roll over. If you don't want to be an investor in a particular property, then it's going to be much simpler for you to just go on the platform, put your bricks up for sale and sell them, then go through the whole process of voting. And then we have to freeze a trust and we have to sell the asset and then we have to return it. So whilst all the properties are generally trading around their current valuation, and we can see how many bricks are for sale and what percentage of the base are selling bricks in each particular property, mm. we have a pretty good idea of if people are happy to hold these longer and roll them over. And the early indications are, Absolutely. Like people are in this for the long run and, and we think a lot of those five year votes will roll over and people will hold it for longer. We haven't got there yet, have you? But the <laughs> first one is, the first one actually is um in November next year. So we BrickX was originally conceived as a thought in twenty thirteen. It took us quite a few years to bring to market, lots of regulatory hurdles mm. for us to jump yep. through to become a asset registered managed investment scheme, be able to offer this to retail. Um and the first property, which was a, a one bed apartment in Enmore. Um, was bought in November 2014, and it it will the five year vote will be in November 2019. So we're not far off for not a bit more than a year off. So my brain always thinks about risks. Like it's always thinking risk, risk, risk. If I manage the risks with what we're doing, then 
but the returns, it's always a maybe, you know, whether the stock market goes up 10% or 20% or the property market goes up five or 20%, it's out of our control anyway, it's yep. to do with the world. But if we can think about the risks, what could possibly go wrong and what could potentially reduce our return, that, that's what matters. If you understand the risk, then the return can potentially come. Yeah. A big risk that's happening, I guess, with a lot of property at the moment is, you know, with a potential change of government with negative gearing, it is creating this new risk that was potentially not there. I, I, I don't believe that negative gearing was likely to become an election issue. I don't even think that it was going to go be cancelled or removed. But now with, you know, Turnbull gone, Labor kind of votes has swung. From all counts, it sounds like they're going to keep pushing ahead with negative gearing. Now, if that does happen... You mean, the ch- you mean, you mean changing it changing or keeping it? it? Changing yeah. it and, yeah. and removing negative gearing. Mm. So, yeah. And if that does happen, that will, will without doubt have a huge impact on parts of the market. Now, I know BRICX are good in terms of where they're buying assets, aren't those, ass- those areas not so much. But it will probably send a shockwave across all the property market and freak the whole market out. How would BRICX deal with that if yep. there was this short-term hit to the market where everything gets hit 10 20% and everyone mm. wants to sell? How would, how would, what's BRICX doing now to protect that kind of short-term blip where, where everyone just blows it up and everyone wants to sell? So I think the first thing I'll say on that is that negative gearing only makes sense and is only a benefit in a rising market. And so if they are going to remove it, then it does seem like the most logical, least controversial, as controversial as it is, time to do something about it when the markets in Sydney and Melbourne are not pumping ahead as as they were previously. The way that I kind of think about how we would think about it is probably no different to how everyone else should think about it. But the first thing you've got to think about is what is at risk and how can I mitigate that? And I know that we our property selection is absolutely top class. And I think that in any challenging environment, as we see today, there is a flight to quality and that is what is most protected and that is where people want to go. So the first thing that gives me comfort is that our quality is, 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 is great and our location. And I mean, not just the quality of the actual individual properties, which, which is great, but actually the locations People still need to, regardless of what happens to property prices, people still need to live somewhere. So it's not like property as an asset class is going to go so out of favor. You know, this is a functional asset that people need. It's not like Bitcoin. It's almost not like gold. People don't have a functional use for gold. Uh, but with property, they do. The people need to live yep. in houses. Yep. And so I think that any adjustment that happens will be um will be relatively short term because of the ability for us to, um, because the ability that we've created where sellers can ultimately put their bricks up for sale and select what price they want to sell at. We've created an environment where if people want to get out, they can sell their bricks for whatever level they want. And I'm I'm fairly confident that there is, you know, there will also be people that see this yeah. as a great long-term opportunity to buy and on the cheap. And so um, I, I think, you know, we already see that now there are people leaving Sydney on the platform. There are also people buying bricks in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. You've got different headlines. One paper will say, you know, prices are falling in Sydney. Oh, yeah. The other paper will say, this may be the best chance that you've ever had to buy in Sydney. And I think the reality is, is that the, the asset class will remain for the long term. And this may, may well be just an opportunity, an amazing opportunity for some people to be able to buy in on, on the cheap. 
we interviewed Kirsten Cray. She's a property journalist a few episodes back and, you know, she came in with a sample of headlines that she'd read in the previous few days before we interviewed her and there were sort of an equal number of negative and positive yep. both all about <clears throat> the Sydney market. So, so yes, it's very difficult for, for people to make good decisions when they're relying on headlines. But I think of interest too is the fact that their their exposure is less than if they owned one individual property in uh, any particular market. So absolutely. they're not going to feel as as pressured <laughs> um, and as as um, anxious, I guess, if they if a they've got less money in it and b they've actually spread that risk somewhat. Now, I, I, wanna, I would expect markets to perform quite differently. I would expect that Sydney and Melbourne to be the most sensitive. Um, you know, we're also, as I mentioned, in Adelaide and Ballarat, and I expect those markets to be probably a little bit less, um, you know, sensitive than uh, to, to any changes that might happen. Yeah, I think your your first point was really important around the capital goes to safety in times of crisis, mm. and that is a hundred percent exactly what happens. Yep. Like, um, you know, when when there's fear and everyone everyone goes, where do I put my money? Nowhere's safe. The bank isn't safe, <laughs> and real estate generally is what pops up. First in in great areas. So through the GFC, the great areas of London actually went up, you know, because everyone in who had money around the world, like Russia and China and things like that, they went, well, I've got to put it somewhere safe. What's an economy and what's a capital city that's going to do well? And I'll put it into London real estate. And I think you're right. Like in good times, people will rush to keep putting things back into, you know, good assets. And I think that's why the inner rings of your Capital cities will stay strong because <laughs> a people won't sell because there's a lot of fear. Mm. They know they won't get a good price, and b there'll be a lot of people who are yeah. willing to to buy in. So and we saw that in London as well when during the GFC when everyone said, "Oh, you know, London prices have fallen ten percent or whatever it may be." If you look at the volumes, there's almost next, there's almost like no volume at that level, and so yeah. a few kind of forced sales or whatever they were that yeah. were occurring mm. that were being you know that were creating these data points. I think the other thing that's probably worth mentioning is that the Australian economy has done pretty, has done amazingly over the last 25 years. People are in a situation where they do have decent amounts of cash uh, and it's not all in real estate. And I think that there will be opportunistic people that see a blip in the market as a way to come in. And I think that will end up supporting the market very, very very, very quickly as well. It does amaze me because throughout the boom, everyone's whinging and bitching and complaining. I just want things to slow down so that I can buy. And I'm like out there now going, okay, guys, this is what you asked for. What are you doing? Nothing, you know. And and this is, you know, world's most famous uh, investor, Warren Buffett, says this. You know, what is, I don't know his exact wording here, but it's something like be fearful when other people are not fearful effectively. And, and, yeah. and, when, and when everyone else is freaking out, then that's the time to actually Go in there and with yeah. confidence understand what you're looking for and where the opportunities yeah. lie and pick them up. And I think with something like real estate, right, there's there's so much history and knowledge of the asset class that it's not like talking about Bitcoin, oh, everyone's fearful of Bitcoin, mm. now's the time to get in. That's still completely unproven yeah. as an investment type. But when it comes to residential property... Um, I think there's a lot of merit in what you just said. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, let's face it, it's concrete. You can see it and people live in it. And like you said, it's a very, very different type of asset. You can actually drive past the thing. You can't drive past your shares. You certainly can't drive past your Bitcoin. It doesn't even really exist. It's in the ether somewhere. You know, I, I will not wrap my head around that. Or can I, I should say, wrap my head around that. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Anthony, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? 
we can all learn what not to do from these stories. I have um, a couple of things that um, have come up recently that I think I'd like to share. What one? So we have amazing data of what people are buying, and one thing that we have noticed is that people have huge, huge, huge bias for buying in areas that they know, thinking that they're going to get the best returns. And so um, <clears throat> my my advice that we're constantly trying to say is, you know, there are plenty of people out there that are experts that have do national research. And if you're looking to buy an investment property from a point of view of actually long-term returns, then don't necessarily think that because you know an area particularly well, that's going to be the best place to buy. That's confirmation bias though, isn't it? If you go back to episode Huge. one with Simon uh, Russell, the behavioural scientist, <coughs> and we talk about confirmation bias. If you've already bought a property in one area, you believe that you made a good decision, you are going to seek all the sorts of information that supports the fact that you made a good decision yeah. and you're going to make another decision exactly the same because it's all supportive of your first decision. So that that's really So I've got 12,000 people that we basically can heat map where they live and where they've bought. Ah, right. And, you, and it's amazing. Like wow. it's a huge data set and you can mm. just see that wow, the yeah. amount of people that live in New South Wales that are buying in Sydney and the amount of people that live in Victoria buying in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, but actually when you move out of those areas, they do generally take a much more diversified approach. Wow. And then I think the other thing that's quite funny was we, did, we conducted some research a couple of weeks ago. Um, a lot of this was covered in the papers last week about the pessimism that exists about people's ability to get onto the property market. And uh, nearly a quarter of the Australian population believe it's more likely that we'll find life on Mars before they actually have the chance to get into their dream home. Now, when you say people, uh, is that millennials? We, uh, we surveyed a thousand, uh, over 1,000 people um, in the age range of 25 to 45 who didn't own property. Mm. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> There is a huge shift. I was just watching something on YouTube last night where uh, home ownership's uh, you know, rate is dropping quite dramatically. It's gone from like 70 down to 62 um, in the US. And obviously, they've got a much bigger data set and it's a different market, et cetera. But I mean, the rent vesting is, you know, becoming more and more of a, you know, consideration for people. And people are actually giving up, mm. um, you know, because the, the cost to be able to get a home deposit in Sydney is 200 grand. So, and the ability to save 200 grand is just, just crazy. Um, it's just not going to happen. So I, those those figures don't surprise me at all because you know, the affordability pressure in Sydney and Melbourne is has kind of gone to ridiculous levels and, um, you know, has left a lot of people with that disbelief that it's never going to happen. So I, I think the, 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 a few things came out of the research. The first thing is that actually the Australian dream is still very much alive and culturally people still want to own property. They are saving people and people are making concessions they're giving up 50% of people said they're not going on holiday for three years um, or an overseas holiday for three years lots of people not spending on personal personal items gadgets etc um, there's a whole bunch of research that's been done over the last few years as the affordability topic has really um, you know come to the fore of people going hey it's always been this hard and you know previously interest rates were 17% etc and I, and I don't deny that. I think the thing that's really different now to what it was for previous generations is there are so many distractions and clever businesses that are, you know, subtly getting us to spend our, our disposable income mm. in ways that, you know, and, and we're, in a, we're in an environment now where we're kind of conditioned for instant gratification yeah. that it's actually just harder to save. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, you just said that, oh, I'm going to delay, I'm not going to go overseas for three years. <laughs> you know, I know people, my parents, they didn't get, my mother didn't even get on a plane till she was 70. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's a generation, I mean, that's a couple of generations, but but it is very true. There are those distractions, it's that old Bernard Salt thing about the smashed avocado and, and we all, um, and that's the, I guess, the negative side or the, the underside of actually being in a wealthy society, isn't it? In a prosperous society. So yeah, we- I mean, you look at the the rise of Afterpay um, and the, you know, the <laughs> success of that um, and you can see that that's exactly 100% true. There's a huge part of the population that, you know, is living week to week, mm. hand to mouth and spending on consumer goods yep. and willing to take out short-term debt because they can't afford to pay it in one month in one in one hit there well, is the what, actual on the other side i do think though there's a obviously a move to minimalism yeah. there's a people of and that's a that is a growing thing on the other side where mm. people are trying to say well less is more and i just want to save and yeah um so there's probably millennials are kind of sitting in two camps i reckon so uh and, yeah. and that's why and that's why we built this smart invest product that mm. commits people to saving because we basically said look unless you commit to this to commit to this goal and actually start making the sacrifices you're not going to accidentally get no, there. I'm going to wake up um, one day with all your money. And, and, and so I think that there are a whole, there's a whole group of people that are actively saving. Yes, it's frustrating. Yes, it's hard. But they they're on their heads in the right place and they're on the right path and they're going to get there. Um, but there's also this whole, you know, the different um, set of people that still want to own a property, but they just haven't quite been shown the steps to take mm. to get them into that kind of uh, diligent committed saving habits like and that's really eating. what, like that's really what we're trying parallel, to do yeah. now to make to make that a lot easier for people um as well interestingly our research said that only four percent of people were prepared to give up avocado yeah. oh, there you had to ask that question <laughs> didn't you well listen anthony it's been an absolute delight having you in with us today we've um covered quite a lot of ground there i've got a greater understanding of your platform the brickx platform and um hope the listeners have two and they can see that as an option that is available to them. Um, we will put some links in the show notes. How best do you feel that our listeners should find out more about what you do? Yeah, so um, the best way to learn more about BrickX is to go to our website, uh, BrickX.com. Uh, there's some great videos on there explaining how it works. It's very easy to sign up and you can sign up and invest in five to ten minutes. Oh, that's probably a bit fast. I think a little bit more due diligence, everybody. Five, <laughs> ten minutes, really. Um, I'd also like if we can get the link to your some of that research on perceptions um, or the pessimism, I should say, of um, of of would be property buyers. That'd be great to put that link in the notes as well. If we, we will can. do that. And um, yes, thank you very much for joining us. And for those listeners, if you like what you're hearing here, please give us an iTunes review. We are so excited every time we get a new one. I can't tell you, and we do genuinely want you to learn so that you can actually make and so we can all make better property decisions. This is really what we're all about here when we talk about the elephant in the room. So please subscribe, let us know what you think. And also you can get onto the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au. Send us a question because we want to answer them. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. So this week's elephant rider training is... All about... What makes a quality asset? One of the things that Anthony talked about a lot was the fact that the whole BrickX platform won't work if they don't buy quality assets. And he doesn't chase cash flow and yield. Note note that, people. 
what he does do, or what they do do, however, they do only look at a five-year horizon. Whilst they say that they might keep these properties longer, they are buying in some areas where they expect a rise in growth and then the market may well peak and then start falling off. So that is something to be mindful of. But what I wanted to do was talk about what fundamentally makes a quality asset when it comes to property. If you look at Pareto's 80-20 rule, what I look at, what I view is that 80% of it is the location and 20% is the asset itself or the property itself. Now, in the location, some of the things that we need to look at are history. History is a very important predictor of the future, but it's not the only one. We can't rely on it. We need to look at the current market conditions and whether that offers opportunities to buy in, such as Sydney right at the minute. If it's highly competitive market currently, then it might not be the greatest time to buy. So don't be chasing the market up. The other two aspects when it comes to location are short-term market indicators. There's a lot of data out there and we've had a number of episodes in the past where we've interviewed researchers such as Kent Lardner, we've had uh, John Lindemann, we've also had uh, Luke Metcalf. We've had some amazing people talking to us about how to research markets and how to look for short-term growth. And that's important to look at because if you are buying at various times in the cycle, the short term is important because it can mean immediate gain or immediate loss. But the long term things that you need to look at in an area, and this is why we go on about the safest areas to invest in or buy in really, are those within 10K radius of Sydney CBD or Melbourne CBD. And that is because of the economic foundations that underpin those markets for long-term sustainable growth. Other areas can deliver long-term sustainable growth as well. It's just that they might be a bit more risky. So you need to really research all of those elements, those employment, incomes, population growth, uh, diversity of employment opportunities, those sorts of things we're looking for. So they're the sort of stable underlying foundations. The other side of that, you need to look at what's on the horizon, what might change things, you know, what sort of infrastructure is coming or being talked about or is it actually being built, what sort of zoning changes and supply is a big one, what sort of subdivisions or ongoing development or future development is there to be anticipated in an area. So these are the sorts of things that we need to be looking looking at when we're considering the location. But the big one, the icing on the cake, the real big decider as to whether you've got an overperformer or an underperformer is the actual asset itself. You can choose a fantastic location and if you don't choose the right property, you can lose money in a great location. You need to look at a property that's in the sweet spot and that means that it's in a budget that the majority of buyers are able and willing to spend money on to buy property in that area, but also you're looking for a property that has all the characteristics that appeals to the maximum amount of buyers in a particular area. These characteristics can change, so from one suburb to another. In one suburb, for instance, people might really like one type of building and in another suburb, that building has no value whatsoever. They like a different style of building. So you need to understand the local market and what buyers want in that individual area. But the other thing, there are quite a number of characteristics around property that are timeless and locationless, if that makes sense. And one of those is natural light, for instance, a good floor plan, a balanced floor plan, a balanced flow from indoors to outdoors, northern aspect, outlooks, all of those sorts of things are universal. So getting in and understanding the characteristics that lend themselves to being a great performer, really important if you want to make a successful property investment. (laughs) 
please join us in our next episode when we interview a bit of podcast royalty, Ben Kingsley, the other half of The Property Couch. Now, we cover quite a lot of topics when we talk to Ben. We talk about their new book that's coming out, Bryce and Ben's book, which is called Make Money Simple Again. We also talk about the formation of PICA, which is a Property Investors Council of Australia, which has been formed to give property investors a voice in Canberra and the state governments. Property investors are currently underrepresented at policy level and yet the policies that are being changed and proposed to be changed really have an impact and a potential to have a, a big impact on property investors particularly negative gearing so we do talk a lot about what will happen if negative gearing gets removed don't forget we're on all the social channels we're on facebook we're on linkedin we're on twitter or you can connect with us on the elephant in the the links are all there for you please connect and send us a message we'd love to hear from you the elephant in the room property podcast is recorded at the sydney sound brewery until next week don't be a dumbo Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.